you have to do it because you want to do it. It's a very long road and it's physically, emotionally, financially, just everything goes into this and it's a very long road until you're even at the point of being independent and really you know, at that point in your career, but just all along the way, it's just a lot of sacrifice. And I'm always incredibly impressed by how many people around me are physicians and they really just have sacrificed so much for that. And they really love it. Like, it's just like, this is their passion. They want to get up. They want to help people. They want to make a difference. They may hardly see their families at all. (laughs) They may, you know, it's just like you put everything on hold for a long time to be able to do it. And even once you're an attending, which is, you know, a practicing physician, that you're still at that point, still putting your life on hold until I don't know when. I think it's an incredibly rewarding field. I feel like it's an incredible privilege to be in this field and to have these opportunities to do this. And I I am so glad that I did it, but it's also, I don't think the right choice for everyone. And so yeah, my idea, from that was just saying that it's not something to enter lightly. That's Dr. Eve Crane, our guest on this episode of the Work Not Work Show. For her, pathology is personal. When Eve was just five years old, her father became gravely ill with what was eventually diagnosed as an aggressive form of multiple sclerosis. It eventually rendered him a quadriplegic and tragically led to his early passing. It was during this period Eve made up her mind that she was going to grow up and dedicate her life to finding a cure for her father's illness. She turned her family's tragedy into a true triumph of the human spirit. It's an awe-inspiring and heartwarming story. Born and raised in Los Alamos, New Mexico, Eve Crane graduated summa cum laude from Rice University in chemical engineering and received her MED and PhD from the University of Michigan. She pursued postdoctoral work at MIT as well as three years of surgical training. However, after some deep soul searching, she realized that she simply had to return to her true professional passion, her calling of pathology. She completed her residency in anatomic pathology, a clinical fellowship in hematopathology at Johns Hopkins Hospital, and is board certified. Recently, she also completed a postdoctoral fellowship with world-renowned stem cell researcher, Dr. Sean Morrison, who was also a guest on a previous episode of the Work Not Work show. Eve now feels she has completed the training phase of her career and recently accepted a position as an assistant professor in the Department of Pathology at the University of Rochester in New York. She can be found there, of course, and on a social media platform near you. We spoke with Dr. Crane at her home in Rochester. I'm your host, Terrence Seganen, and this is the Work Not Work Show, a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. Dr. Eve Crane, thank you so much for taking time to talk with us today. Oh, thank you. I'm really thrilled to be a part of this program. Before we get to the interview proper and to help our broad base of listeners, can you briefly define precisely what pathology is and what a pathologist does? I'm really glad you asked this question. I mean, I think it's something 
that even people in the medical profession are not entirely sure what pathologists do. And it's a specialty where we have trouble getting medical students as interested in it as I think they would be if they understood it better. But essentially, anything that is removed from the body, whether it be blood or a fluid sample or a tumor specimen or something else, pathologists is involved in figuring out exactly what that is. Certainly, we do autopsies, which you know, is important for understanding why a certain individual may have died, either from natural causes or from you know, a homicide or an accident or something like that. But also, we're just integral to actually figuring out any sort of diagnosis for a specimen that's removed for living patients in the hospital. It's becoming increasingly important with more personalized medicine, more options for therapy, that we get the diagnosis exactly right. I think it's a very exciting time to be a pathologist because we do have a lot of tests at our disposal, a lot of different molecular assays where we can really figure out exactly what's driving the disease in addition to exactly what the disease is. There was a very defined moment when you were a child, when you found your life's professional passion and started down that path, one you're still on today. Can you tell us about that particular time in your life when you were just five years old? Well... I mean, I grew up in uh, kind of a strange town to begin with. I grew up in Los Alamos, New Mexico, which is a town that was built around the um, National Weapons Laboratory. And so it's a town where everybody's kind of already thinking about science all the time. <laughs> it's like uh, most, most people were in physics, but uh, I think there was a sense that like everything to be done in physics has already been done. And so you're kind of thinking, well, what can I do? What can I do to make a difference with your life? And I was kind of already thinking that when I was little. But then my dad became very ill very quickly when I was just five. And uh, he was a competitive bike racer, just extremely fit, extremely active, both at work and with uh, our family and and everything. And, and it was just very suddenly he became extremely weak, very unbalanced. And it seemed like kind of a presentation of like a brain tumor or something. Ultimately, it turned out to be a chronic progressive form of multiple sclerosis, which at the time, you know, compared to a brain tumor is certainly good news. But in his case, um, most people with MS have kind of a relapsing or emitting course where maybe they have some times where they regain close to normal function and then later progressively may lose function after many years. But he had a fairly rapidly progressive course and uh, ended up having to retire and was essentially quadriplegic for probably the last 10 years of his life. It was hard to even to diagnose it. But then over time, there really weren't any therapies for it. We just sort of watched him slowly lose function day after day. And particularly, you know, if you look back over a year, how much he would have lost, you thought, well, there's, you know, anything that we could do to slow this progression, it could have a huge impact on someone's life. And we don't even know what's causing this disease. There has to be a way to slow or stop this process. That really inspired me to go into medicine, never necessarily thinking that I just wanted to treat patients because I felt like that the, the treatments were so limited in certain cases that I wanted to be a little bit behind the scenes was always my thinking that I that I would figure out what was going on, but I needed that medical training to be able to make a difference and to be able to understand these diseases. 
So you felt that at five years old, when this was occurring, that that really changed your life from that moment forward? Exactly how I was going to react to that is something that must have evolved over time. And it's hard to exactly say, but certainly that event when he became ill and never got better certainly changed our family forever. That that event occurs to a number of families every day with a diagnosis of cancer or the Gehrig's disease or multiple sclerosis or something else. And a lot of these diseases, you do not have a necessarily a sudden event like if it was a car accident or something like there's a period of time where there really is an opportunity to fight the disease and to change the course of the disease, but we simply don't know how. And we're getting better at that with certain diseases, certainly with many types of cancers. We now have targeted therapies where we can address that and profoundly prolong life like chronic myelogenous leukemia. We have a drug that specifically inhibits the kinase that becomes activated. I think there's certainly a way in multiple sclerosis and in other types of multiple sclerosis, relapsing, remitting kind, there have been drugs introduced that can slow the course. And so I think there's definitely hope, but certainly that kind of gave me a purpose. There has to be something that we can do. And it wasn't like a problem that ever went away that you could forget about because every further loss of function for him. And so I think having that resolve was just stronger and stronger over time that there has to be a way that I could make a difference, ultimately not for him, but for others. Eve, you graduated summa cum laude from Rice University in chemical engineering. I did a summer at Los Alamos where you grew up and another summer at Exxon. That sounds for all the world like you were headed to a career in the oil and gas industry. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I had wanted to go to medical school. I had always wanted to go to medical school. When I got to college, that was my plan. But I had loved all of these biology courses so much. I had tested out of all of the biology courses that I would need to take at college, and I needed to catch up on my chemistry. And so I was like, all right, well, sign me up for Chemistry 101. And uh, I hadn't really taken to chemistry much in high school, but I just absolutely loved it. And organic chemistry, I just was in heaven. I thought this most fascinating topic ever, which is usually kind of the thing that weeds people out of medical school. They're like, all right, I guess I have to pass this. And then I just move on with my life. But for me, I was like, well, I got to do more. Eventually, I was like, well, what could I even, why don't I just major in something that uses more chemistry? And chemical engineering was just an obvious choice. I loved it. And I thought, should I really still be a doctor? Like, maybe this is my calling. Like, maybe I should at least explore what a chemical engineer does. And I am glad that I did that. And I did uh, work a summer at Exxon, <laughs> yeah, in Baytown. That was one of the best summers I've had. It was really a neat opportunity. What was what was it in particular that you found so fascinating? So basically, they had this idea, because you know how um, when you get a new car, it has that lovely smell of the plasticizers, which... New car smell. It's, it's new great. New car smell. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> which <laughs> I haven't smelled that in a long time. But, you know, anyway, but now that I have my new job, maybe, maybe one day I will be... Uh, right. Smell that smell again. But uh, anyway, but that... The, the idea was that we actually don't really want that, that it's, that's actually a critical component that's leaching out of the plastic, and it's something that keeps it more pliable, and it will get more brittle over time. 
So they had this idea that I could actually make a compound or work on basically the parameters to produce a large amount of a compound that instead of kind of being mixed in with the plastic would actually be polymerized as part of the plastic. And then the plastic would be permanently pliable and you wouldn't actually breathe in the toxic new car smell. Right. And the material the material would last for longer. There had been a patent published by somebody else of what would work. I used the patent data to basically figure out the kinetics of the chemical reactions to produce that. And then they let me actually build, because they have like a little test facility, they let me build like a pilot plant where I could make a small amount of the product and small by Exxon standards was about 2,000 pounds. Literally a ton of the stuff. Literally a ton of the stuff. <laughs> right. Okay, here it goes. Is this really right? Like I want, you know, these things mixed at this temperature and pressure for this period of time, and it's going to go through a distillation column with this many levels, and it's going to do this. And it's like, is it really going to come out? A is what I wanted it to be. Right. And B, like at the right purity, is it going to work? I tend to look a little bit young for my age, but at that time I was only 21. And they said, oh, I got my little hard hat and I go in there and I was supposed to tell the people how to build the plant. And they're like, what? Right. We're not, but they did it. <laughs> it was just like totally ridiculous. It was so happy to have like that responsibility and that chance to test my skills and, and it worked. And I was like, well, that's something that's useful. Although I haven't seen it. <laughs> implemented it's been like 20 years ago <laughs> do you know for a fact that if exxon went ahead and made a billion dollars with it uh, i don't know they might have but I, I still don't i think i think we still have plenty of plasticizers i think it ended up not being economical to incorporate it right but i mean i think at the end of the day i felt like i still want to be a doctor i still want to do medical research and the chemistry background this problem solving background that you get in engineering and kind of this flexibility of how I'm going to solve this, how I'm going to put this piece together, I think it's probably the most, I mean, I'm a little biased, obviously. <laughs> but I think it's the most powerful background that you can have for, for medicine, I think. What you've just described, it sounds exciting. It sounds like you were interested in the work, and yet you still decided to go back into medicine. Can you describe that turning point? Yeah, I mean, I think that one is relatively easy to describe because that was after my junior year of college. So you have a natural break point where you have to go back and resume your studies. And then it's the fall, you've got to decide, you know, maybe I go back again and seek full-time employment after that, which I certainly could have done. Or do I go ahead and apply to medical school? I was actually doing work at the time at Rice that bridged that gap between engineering and medicine. And I think that made me believe that I could do both. I was actually doing this field called tissue engineering, where you use uh, different materials and things like that to be able to regenerate organs, regenerate skin. In particular, we're working on bone at the time. I was using my chemical engineering skills to develop things that would advance patient care. And in particular, using stem cells in those techniques to be able to expand the autologous tissue into a new organ or a replacement tissue. So I thought, well, you know, let me keep going with my current plan. Working at Exxon was fun. And if there hadn't been that break and I was doing all these things, I don't think I would have left, you know, because it was just built on itself. But since I had that forced break at the end of the summer, I think that broke the momentum. Also, because of my dad being sick, our family were just like concentrated on 
survival essentially and trying to take care of my dad, trying to do what we need to do. We couldn't like all go to Europe or something like that. Right. So I was like, well, you know, why don't I apply for medical school and I'll apply for this kind of long shot. I'll apply for this British Marshall scholarship and see if I could go over there and do research and maybe learn a little bit more about MS, you know, as I'd been focusing on this engineering, you know, I could go over there, I could, you know, get my background in research closer to what I had originally envisioned with MS research. And I could get a different perspective and see the world a little bit more as as I had wanted to do. And I thought that might, you know, shape me as a person and, and my career going forward. I was lucky enough to get one of those scholarships. They give out, I think, just 40 or something like that a year. And so it was it was a really neat opportunity. Where did you actually study, Eve? Um, I was at University College London, nice. which is part of the University of London. Yep. Yeah. And they had um, a smaller unit there at the Institute of Neurology that specifically was working on MS research. Right. So it was a perfect fit for it. It was for, a perfect was- fit. En route to where you are today, you started a surgical residency in pursuit of becoming a fully qualified surgeon. Why was it that you decided to restart your residency in pathology, which you did? After completing my MD and PhD degrees, I initially decided to be full-time research in part to help take care of my dad. And I was at MIT doing that and working on mouse models of cancer there. Then we came to, you know, as you do in research, kind of a snafu. It looked like we were going to have to completely change direction. And what we were doing was really not going to lead anywhere. That so you just kind of realize this isn't going to go anywhere. Unfortunately, at that same time, my father passed away. Oh, dear. And I got divorced, actually. So oh. it's like, ah! Wow. So then I was like, why don't I be a surgeon? That will be good. <laughs> you know? Wow. Which I, it was a little bit crazy at the time. I didn't have it in me to do the research at that moment. Right. You know, and I was like, I want to like help people. I want to help people now. Right. Which it was amazing. I did love that aspect of surgery. Like trauma happens, you're there, you're solving it, you're managing it. You make a huge difference in these people's lives. Like it's, it's incredible. It's very immediate. It's very immediate. I also felt a little sad after finishing all of that medical training that I never really practiced. I never, you know, I didn't, you know, somebody on the airplane says, is there a doctor? I would be like, well, not really, you know, but it was like after those years of surgery, I'm like, yes, I can handle it. It's a really incredible opportunity to be, to be part of a surgical team. And uh, yeah, I did mostly, I was in a urology program, uh, but we had two years to begin with of general surgery. So most of it, what I did was general surgery, which covers trauma, transplant, colorectal surgery. So the transplant service was my favorite because you you can make a huge, I don't know, you can make a huge difference in these patients' lives, but you're also connecting across the board with, you know, families that have undergone an immediate tragedy. And you, you go out there and you get the organs from their loved one. We'd you know, fly out of the middle of the night to get those organs, bring them back, and you see where those organs are going, and you just have this huge continuity. It's kind of this connection of humanity. I think I, I don't know. It's hard for me to describe exactly, but you're making the best of situations that 
are otherwise terrible and helping to turn that into new hope. Sure. And the network that they have for matching up organs and things like that. It's just, I think it's just an incredible thing. Just incredibly good surgeons and making an incredible difference. And so to be part of that was, was pretty incredible. What was the turning point that got you back to pathology, though? The turning point was the physical nature of a surgical training program and probably even the life of a surgeon is probably beyond what my body can really do. Like I was very sick, very thin. It wasn't doable. It was a bit of a reaction that I had gone into surgery in the first place that at that point in time, I just wasn't able to do the science that I was passionate about. I realized that 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 is really what I need to be doing, looking at mechanisms of disease within the limitations that I felt like I physically had, like I couldn't both be an excellent surgeon and also carve out time to do science. There are people who do, and they are my heroes, but to me, I felt like it's just very separate things. And I think there's other people who are better at surgery itself as well. This just isn't the best way that I should be doing things or that the world has benefited. Like, I just feel like there's other people who are so much better at this. My calling is really to do something else. So I had several long talks with the chairman and they were able to, you know, find another person. I mean, it's extremely competitive to be in surgery. They're able to find someone to hop into that spot who is excellent. And I was very lucky to uh, be able to have Hopkins let me start over and be in their pathology programs. Yeah, it's kind of a red flag if you decide to leave one of these training programs. They're so competitive to get into in the first place. So when you decide to change, it's disruptive to the whole system, but it sounds like you were able to make the transition relatively easily. Yeah, I think relatively. But I'm incredibly grateful for people's understanding and their support of my transition to do that. You know, and I hadn't actually been doing pathology and didn't have much time to pursue potential interest in pathology while I was doing the surgery. And so it was like, you know, is she really going to enjoy this field or no? But once I started in that, it's just like, this is the perfect match. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. The time that I had spent on surgery definitely made me a stronger person and made me a stronger pathologist as well, because you just know so much more about patient management from the other side that it's just understanding the whole disease process I think it, it was useful I mean I don't, you would do that on purpose but it was it was useful we'll have much more from Dr. Eve Crane in just a moment but as I mentioned earlier the work not work show is a proud member of the Alberta podcast network powered by ATB APN is dedicated to the support and development of independent podcasts here in our beautiful home of Alberta, Canada. As a member of APN, we receive both financial support as well as the fellowship of other great podcasters in the network. Because there are so many great podcasts from which to choose, here's a personal recommendation to get you started. That's So Maven with host Andrea Bessa. Like the Work Not Work show, Andrea features great in-depth interviews with a wide variety of amazing guests. Andrea has a unique style which will make listening both enlightening and entertaining. So after you finish listening to Dr. Eve Crane, check out That's So Maven with Andrea Bessa. It can be found, along with a host of other great independent podcasts, at albertapodcastnetwork.com. That's just the way it sounds. No spaces.
Pathology is often characterized as a behind-the-scenes specialty within medicine, but you've been involved in some cases that were anything but that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true, and I and that's something that we're working to change as a field in pathology, to be more accessible to patients who have questions about their diagnosis and to be more readily involved with the clinical teams. I can't think what the original case was. I did have a more recent incident where the patient had a very aggressive looking lesion that was seen on an imaging study. And it certainly for all the world looked like a very bad cancer. They were suspecting it was a lymphoma, but it was the sort of thing where she was like, okay, we need to get a diagnosis. And then, you know, maybe I need to put my affairs in order. But uh, we got the slides and I was like, what is this? Like, there's all these weird little clear dots. I was like, that's not what is that? And I was like, oh my gosh, it's cryptococcus. And I was like, whoa, this is just... Um, and for our listeners, what is that exactly? It's just a fungus. And the patient had been treated with a course of steroids. And sometimes that will suppress your immune system. That's part of it. But somehow this had allowed an infection Infection that you can get sometimes cleaning out barns or just being outdoors. It's kind of a soil fungus. Sometimes lives in your lungs and sometimes it can get into the bloodstream. And usually it's not an issue unless you have patients who have HIV or other immunosuppressants or a patient on steroids or something. But no one was suspecting any of that uh, because it was a healthy patient. No history of of any of these uh, type of disorders. And the only thing that had showed up on the imaging was this weird you know, really aggressive looking bone lesion. But it turned out that it was actually this fungus that had seeded that area and then had gotten out of control on the steroids. Like potentially she had an injury in that area or something that had led to that. But anyway, but she was very concerned. I think it was a weekend or something. Like I realized that her clinical team wasn't going to be able to really check the pathology report and I couldn't get a hold of them in the clinic. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to call the patient and tell her what this is because this poor person, she's been told how bad this looks and there's, you know, who knows what we can do to treat this. Going to be treating with an antifungal agent or something or, you know, probably just reading it, but it's it's not going to be, it shouldn't be a life-threatening issue. So to call her up and be able to reach out, I thought was a great thing about pathology that I don't usually do. Eve, you have previously acknowledged that you are going to be wrong despite your best efforts. Dr. Sean Morrison, who you've described as a mentor of yours and who's also been a guest on this show, he refers to this as humility before the facts. Yeah, I mean, I think pathology is a, is a unique field in medicine because most medicine, you're there with the patient with the picture changing with time and no one can really know exactly what the situation was that you faced at that individual time. But in pathology... The material that we look at, for the most part, is fixed on a glass slide. And so you're trying to come up with a diagnosis in the moment, but that may not be correct as we find out later information in terms of the patient's clinical history, or you know maybe they had you know received a radiation for something that would completely change your idea of what you're looking at. So yeah, I think we have an extra layer of humility when we try to interpret the slide, and maybe we're too cautious with that. But you you want to give people the best diagnosis, but you know that in the future, you know, people are probably going to discover something and realize, you know, your whole concept of what that disease was wrong. And now they can go back and look at the same material 
and be like, no, this is obviously this other thing that, you know, could have been treated in this way. And we do that now with cases that were seen 10, 20 years ago. Yeah, in the future, people are going to find the stuff that I've done now and, and I'll be proven wrong. But, you know, all we can do is do the best that we can at the moment and to try, as we see our limitations going along, to bring that material together to ask the right questions so that we won't be as limited in the future. You've worked a lot with uh, Sean Morrison over the years. Can you describe him as a mentor and perhaps use that as a means of understanding the value of a mentoring relationship? Yeah, I mean, I think Sean has been a really powerful mentor in my history. He was my graduate advisor. I was his first graduate student from the time when the lab was just a few people. I have had the opportunity not only to interact and have his feedback, but also to see how his career has evolved and his mentoring strategies have evolved over time as well. Um, and to be able to to take that. We have our own fellow now at University of Rochester, and I am trying to take what I learned from that relationship into now into mentoring. As a mentor, Sean is very tough. He has very high standards for himself and he expects no less of anyone else. I am very similar in that way and I'm very hard on myself and that we actually work together very well because of that. But it's the day-to-day is tough because it's not like anyone's be like, great job, I love that. You know, it's like, <laughs> you know, like even when you were like, this is so good. Like this is the, this is like the best result I could have hoped for. And it's like, well, but you still didn't do X, Y, and Z. And it's like, right. And you're like, Oh man, you don't, you don't, you don't rest. You don't celebrate. You don't ever say, Oh good. You know, I can rest on my laurels. How do you take it to the next level? It has really shaped me, you know, made me more confident and independent that you're not necessarily, I mean, you you are concerned about what other people are doing because you want to build on their work. You want them to be able to build on your work. You want to be doing things that are relevant, but at the same time, you're not, you're not really holding yourself to that standard. You know, everything has to be the best that it can be in the context that, that you're doing it. He doesn't ask them to do something that he doesn't feel that you're either capable of or he wouldn't be willing to do himself. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Some of it may not even be possible, but it's like we, just, we have to try. It's right. like, well, let's try to do this. So, yeah, but it's not – it's hard to say because I'm only one person. So I don't know whether or not he changes his expectations, whether depending on what he thinks that individual person is capable of. Having been back in his lab over the past year, he has some really extraordinary people uh, working with him, and they're some of the most extraordinary, capable people that I've I've met. So I don't know. So he probably doesn't have to adjust his standards. He's he the the people who he has uh, surrounded with him, he he has very high hopes for, and and they seem to achieve it. But it's it's tough. Yeah. You've referred to cases as puzzles that must be solved and that identifying a pattern is critical to that process. Are these seemingly ephemeral pattern recognition skills innate to a particular individual like yourself, or can they be taught? Yeah, I think this is a great question, because this uh, gets better to what a pathologist is. I mean, there's some patterns, you know, like you look up in the sky, you see a rainbow, you're like, that's a rainbow. You know, everyone, everyone's going to recognize that. And there's quite a few entities in pathology that kind of look a particular way. It's like a certain mutation happens. Regardless of the patient, you kind of get that same 
pattern forming. And you want to have, a, you know, by the time you're done with your residency training, you want to have those in your mind. And so that when you see that snap, you've got it. And we have even a particular word for that. It's like, oh, that's pathognomonic for that. Explain that in terms that, that our listeners will understand. If you have a particular constellation of symptoms, you know, for example, somebody with infectious mono, you know, I have a 20-year-old college student that has swollen lymph nodes and a fever and a, he has a swollen spleen. You're like, okay, this story, this is a person that's showing up with mono. That whole picture is pathognomonic for that. So there are certain entities like that, but I'm referring more to, in the sense of pathology, usually you see a pattern and particularly how the cells are arranged, what kind of cell types are there, how the cells look. There are certain patterns and it's not rocket science. I mean, anyone studying it can see those patterns. Where pathology gets fun is when it, it doesn't quite fit the pattern. It doesn't quite maybe fit any pattern. I mean, there must be situations where it's close to mono, but it's not mono. Yeah. And actually, there's another virus, cytomegalovirus, that causes a syndrome that's close to mono, but it's not mono. It's a different virus, and it's a little bit different. Right. So you want to be trained to the point where you're not going to miss these ones that are clearly what they are. And most diagnoses are not something completely strange and completely never heard of. Like the flu is the flu. People get colon cancer, it's colon cancer. But you want to know, when am I seeing something that's not right? When is something really different? When is something showing up that we never have seen before? Like when we started seeing these brain lymphomas, it's like, wait a minute, clinicians said they haven't even seen a patient like this in 15 years. And we just had five. Right. That's not a pattern that we normally see. Right. Pathology, you don't want every case to be totally weird. If you have hours, you never get right. anything done. But to have this combination of unusual cases. And there's a lot of common diseases that will present in a very unusual way. You're like, oh, that was really strange. But it's still mono. Follicular lymphoma is something that we deal with quite a lot in hematopathology. That's a very common type of lymphoma but it may present in unusual ways. So Eve, hematopathology, that's pathology of blood. Yes, blood, lymph nodes, bone marrow, basically anything so-called hematolymphoid tissue. When asked what aspiring doctors should ask themselves, you're quoted as saying, if you don't get into medical school, will helping others still be your greatest passion? I'll admit to being a little confused by that. Can you tell us what you meant by that? I guess I'm getting at that it's not something you could be like, oh, you know, my dad wants me to be a lawyer. I mean, I don't really think about what it's like to be a lawyer, but you have to do it because you want to do it. It's a very long road and it's physically, emotionally, financially, just everything goes into this. And it's a very long road until you're even at the point of being independent and really you know, at that point in your career, but just all along the way, it's just a lot of sacrifice. And I'm always incredibly impressed by how many people around me are physicians and they really just have sacrificed so much for that. And they really love it. Like, it's just like, this is their passion. They want to get up. They want to help people. They want to make a difference. They may hardly see their families at all. (laughs) They may, you know, it's just like you put everything on hold for a long time to be able to do it. And even once you're an attending, which is, you know, a practicing physician, that you're still, at that point, still putting your life on hold until I don't know when. I think it's an incredibly rewarding field. I feel like it's an incredible privilege to be in this field. 
and to have these opportunities to do this. And I I am so glad that I did it. But it's also, I don't think the right choice for everyone. And so yeah, my idea from that was just saying that it's not something to enter lightly. Your bibliography, that is your list of published papers in which you are named as either an author or as a co-author, it's immense, Eve. Is there an overarching organizing idea that would help a layperson understand this body of work? Yeah, I wish I had a better answer to this. Basically, when I started at Hopkins, what they recommended was that you focus on a particular area, even if you weren't quite sure what you wanted to do exactly within pathology yet. So there would be an overarching theme to uh, what you had produced. But unfortunately for me, I guess the overarching theme is things that I was passionate about and things where there's right questions to ask at the right time. And depending what group you are with, what materials you have, what other data is available in the field, there can be very interesting questions to ask in those areas at that time. You know, my initial passion going into this was to look at MS and to find a cure for MS or find something to slow the progression of MS. Uh, It's a very challenging field and there wasn't the right way uh, to have an impact in that. But there are a lot of other things you could have a potential impact in. As I interacted uh, with others, I found these particular areas. And I think that a number of the studies that I've been involved in have been impactful, but have been also in very separate areas. Some of the tissue engineering work that I did um, to look at basically ways to form new bone and bone that could be used to repair either uh, tissue that didn't form correctly in the first place or massive defects following cancer resections and other things. Like that work has been cited nearly a thousand times but that's very different than I'm doing now. And my work in Sean's lab, initially just working on stem cells that are part of basically the uh, peripheral nervous system, that work has also informed a lot of other work, but it's not necessarily what I'm doing now either. We'll see. I am working on having a more concise theme to combine my research and clinical interests. I still uh, look for opportunities where I could make a difference and I take them. And related to that, you're named in two patents, at least two, one of which was with Sean Morrison. Have these been developed into products and therapies that have been commercialized? Unfortunately not. So the work with Sean, basically we discovered that there's a stem cell population that we thought disappeared during late fetal development that persists indeed actually all the way into adulthood. And there's a number of potential applications for this, but our work initially was um, in animal models. And it's been a little bit slower to develop the techniques to study these cells in humans. And so that has slowed the progress of that. But I still think on the horizon, encouraging repair efforts from those cell populations have huge potential. The other patent, that was kind of another combination between my chemical engineering interests and medicine, where we modified basically a gel material and alginate to be able to hold Uh, different types of drugs, drugs that had like a specific so-called functional group on them could be bound in a way that could be degraded readily by the body onto this gel. And the gel would also only form 
at body temperature. So you could inject it into a site that you wanted. It would form a gel there and slowly release this drug. And so it was, it was kind of a cool concept. And I think that also has utility. That lab has gone on to like further modify that material. And so that the further modifications, uh, I think, are being marketed, but not the original. As it relates to these patents and speaking in broad terms, what are your thoughts about the nexus between the altruistic and commercial vectors of modern medicine? It is reasonable to connect them, uh, particularly in the field where I am now studying blood diseases. There's tremendous potential to look at what mutations these patients have and get them a targeted treatment. You know, because there's a lot of different drugs being developed, but only some, they're only going to work for a minute number of patients and to figure out which drug for which patient is huge. And so the testing for this is kind of beyond the scope of what individual universities or different labs can develop. They can, but I mean, I think these kind of things probably should be commercialized. There should be more collaboration between basic science and actually getting these discoveries to ways that are useful to patients and that are done on kind of economies of scale where they can actually be produced in a way that people could afford to to have these kind of tests or devices. In June of 2017, you started as an assistant professor in the Department of Pathology at the University of Rochester School of Medicine in New York, of course. Does this represent a new phase in your career? This was a huge deal for me to actually be stating I'm done with my training, which, of course, lifelong, you're still learning, you're still training, you're still developing skills. But to say, finally, I am moving to that next phase of my career. Particularly meant a lot to me when you asked me initially about this interview when I was still uh, doing a postdoctoral fellowship. Really, my whole kind of adult life, I have been in various training programs, trying to constantly shape my career into the way that I wanted it to be. And it's like, okay, like this is actually a job now where, you know, this is going to be what I've done with all of this immense amount of training. Like, how do I pull this together to really finally have this be my career? It's it's a little emotional to think, you know, how does this come together? But I think it's been, it's been a good six months where I think, I am now getting more settled in terms of my clinical work and the, and the workflow uh, with our system there, and as well, get things going from the research front as well. Well, many are quick to dismiss social media for, for good reason, for, in a lot of cases. Um, <laughs> you have actually embraced it as part of your practice of pathology. Why is that exactly? Yeah, I think I have been surprised myself at how passionate I have become about social media. It was something, I mean, and certainly we've all seen examples. It actually is very powerful. You know, a single individual can have a voice. And depending on what they say, that voice can really be amplified. But I found that within the pathology community, that there is an incredibly supportive intellectual, just very fun environment of people who are fascinated by these different mechanisms of disease, wanting to collaborate, wanting to get to the bottom of these puzzles. As a pathologist, you're often on your own in your office. You see something, you're so excited about it. You're kind of wondering, has anybody else seen this? You know, maybe if everybody sees this all the time, like I never noticed this before. Right. You know, you, su- you suddenly have a community 
where you can reach out and say, you know, what do you think of this? This is, this seems, and, and I typically use Twitter, which, um, you know, you don't post very much information about it. You may, you know, wait a while if you see something really unusual, but right. you may just, you know, post a picture of cells. That's a particular weird cell that really wouldn't be of interest to anyone <laughs> other than a pathologist. But it's so fun because it finds just the random small set of the population that is passionate about the same things that you are. It's opened up a whole new world for me because now I see these same people at professional meetings. We write papers together, talk to them outside of social media as well to help solve difficult cases. They've given me opportunities, you know, to write chapters and, and other things. To me, it's it's basically a whole community that, that I enjoy being part of. So. Well, that's great. And, and is it true that you're using these microscopic slide images to create art worthy of hanging in a gallery? Is that becoming a sideline occupation for you, Eve? Um, I would be happy for that. But yeah, at Hopkins, we had in our room where we had all the different sign outs, there's a huge number of microscopes. And they had decorated that in the past with all of these beautiful images of that were, you know, classic pathology kind of. If you saw it, you'd know what that entity was. And so kind of to help you learn, but they were just stunning. And I thought, well, I want to, I want to, so maybe I borrowed the idea, but I think it is gaining popularity that I have seen a number of uh, meetings are having competitions now for these type of photographs. I've seen them in the hallway. It is something that people enjoy and it's, and it's interesting to hear the story behind it too. We have much more to come from Dr. Eve Crane in our final segment, but first a brief moment to once again mention we're a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. I like to say that ATB is like a bank, but better. Better how exactly? Well, in many ways, but let me tell you about just one of them. During the upcoming holiday season, we often think of those in need of our financial support and make a donation. Well, how would you like a way of increasing that donation by 15% at absolutely no cost to you? That's what the ATB CARES program does. You donate to a charity of your choice through atbcares.com and ATB will cover any and all fees and they will add 15% to your donation. That's right, 15%. There's a wide variety of programs from which to choose, perhaps medical research along the lines of that of our guest. In 2017, over $4 million was donated to these causes through ATB Cares. So check it out at atbcares.com. It's absolutely worth your while. Eve, you've mentioned in previous interviews that your mother was also a source of inspiration for you. Can you talk about that a little bit? Um, my mother was a huge source of inspiration and support for me during this entire uh, training period. I mean, I think for one thing, I often uh, talk about my dad being a huge inspiration for me, wanting to go into medicine um, because of his illness. But the whole time, my mom was taking care of him. She's trying to take care of us three kids growing up. Uh, she had initially wanted to be a teacher. It turned out uh, that, she, that really didn't fit 
her personality, but she was able to adapt and ultimately move into school administration after staying at home for a while with, with us children. But it was like she had this very kind of challenging situation that I think I didn't appreciate at the time growing up that she was like, oh my gosh, you know, I don't really have a career. My husband's extremely sick. I have these kids that are young. Like, how do we, how do we deal with this? And looking back, I just think it's incredible that she was able to kind of support us so much and keep everything running at the level that she did. And since then, she just continues to impress me with just how supportive she is of my career. She'll do anything that she can to make sure that I succeed. And she keeps developing other things on her side. After my dad passed away, she really, um, it took a while for her to recover because that was completely defining kind of her existence was taking care of him. But now she has developed this whole sewing business where she has kind of her own personality and develops all these creations and just actually almost all the clothes that I wear now are made by her. And she even makes a lot of strange pathology fashions and things. She doesn't really sell them. We just make them for whoever would like them. So yeah, but she, but she could, she could sell them, particularly the clothes that she makes are really unique and interesting, but I guess she doesn't want to make the same thing over and over. She always wants to challenge herself to try to make something different. She enjoys making them for me because she knows that, I'll wear them. So sometimes people would make fun of me, like, uh, I don't know, at Hopkins, sometimes someone's like, why did your mother dress you like a peacock? I was like, well, I don't know. It's like, I just thought I'd wear it or, you know, whatever. But some of the things are just amazingly stunning. Some, yeah, like anything that you do, like, you know, she made one dress she called the mermaid dress, um, but I couldn't move my legs at all. I was like, okay, (laughs) that's kind of a cool concept, but I can't move. So, yeah, I don't know. But I mean, I think she just uh, she never gives up. She's always challenging herself. She's been through uh, a tremendous amount and she remains positive. So I don't know. Like I, I she is definitely a huge inspiration to me and certainly in terms of perseverance and being innovative. And so I am I am very grateful for her influence as well. Now, Eve, there's there's more to the story than that. I understand that your mother was actually quite ill. And if you don't mind, could you tell that story? My mom has been, after her experience with my dad and other things that she's been through, she kind of felt like she didn't really want, she didn't really want to have anything more to do with the medical profession, even though, um, actually, I'm a doctor and my brother, my older brother is also a doctor, but she just kind of felt like I don't really want to find out anymore about my hypertension and having mammograms and things like that. Uh, But she's started to get very sick, having a lot of heavy bleeding that really couldn't be explained. And uh, I was like, mom, you've, you've got to go in for a screen. You've got to, you've got to go get a colonoscopy. Like that's that. Um, And she was so afraid and it's pretty normal. I think a lot of people are afraid, especially when you kind of have this feeling that something is really wrong. It's like, you just want to wait a little bit longer to, to just be, you know, healthy and not know that that's happening. Um, everybody hopes it goes away. Everybody hopes it goes away. And she had, I think broken her toe or something and she was taking some Advil and I was like, Oh, please let it just be, you know, some sort of ibuprofen induced ulcer or something that's causing the bleeding. But I kind of knew in my heart, I was like, that's just, it's just, that's not right. Like, I think 
we do so much, especially in pathology, we're thinking about what could we treat this with or what could we reclassify, you know, and try to think of more elaborate treatments, but better than elaborate treatments and any front is, you know, catching the disease early and surgically removing the cancer. And we've had a huge impact on colorectal cancer by screening and screening is just so critical in that area because you can, the disease has a very orderly and actually pretty slow progression. Screening saves so many lives. She had been scared of the prep, scared of the procedure, wouldn't go, but I was able to fly back to where she was in New Mexico and, you know, help her kind of get through these procedures. It ended up being a fairly large tumor. We were extremely lucky that it apparently had not spread to the lymph nodes and it had not seemed like it was like one cell layer left, but it just hadn't crawled through the colon yet. She was very lucky and she's cancer-free now for two years. And my uncles, she has three brothers, are also pretty stubborn and they actually hadn't been screened either. And at least one of them did also have a very large polyp that likely would have become a cancer. And so it's just reminded me that even though it's a little bit different than what I'm doing, it's just so important to have the screening done. And we just can't, you know, even with all the personalized medicine and all the advances in molecular diagnosis, like nothing's better than, than prevention. Right. But I'm just grateful every day that at least finally, you know, that she did have that detected before it had spread any further. What a fantastic story and what a wonderful outcome. There's one poignant story that involves Christmas Eve and angel wings, what was that story exactly, Eve? So this is probably like my favorite moment um, from my surgical training. I particularly enjoyed being on the intensive care unit um, because I felt like you're just so integrated into the outcome of those patients and everything you did, every decision you make could just have a huge impact in, in those patients' lives. And we had one particular patient that really touched me. It was it was an elderly woman who had had a terrible intra-abdominal complication. She had uh, her colon actually ruptured and she was septic. So sort of like your appendix burst, but like a thousand times worse. You know, there's a lot of issues in medicine on whether or not, you know, how much end-of-life care should we do if someone's elderly? You know, maybe we don't do a whole elaborate ICU care. They brought her through surgery, her family was adamant that they wanted everything to be done. And uh, so we're like, okay, you want it done? We do it. And we just went into full-on mode and we had fluids and very supportive care. We had a new method that had been published about, you know, if you did early, basically renal supplementation therapy, this continuous venovenous uh dialysis that maybe people would cover from sepsis faster. And some people are like, what are you guys doing? You know, this person is so sick. Like, how are you going to save her? And it's like, well, we're going to try, you know, her family wants to try, we're going to try. And so if you get through that immediate period when someone's very ill, uh, then you kind of have this long, longer time where you kind of wait to see if anything's going to, you know, are their organs going to come back? Are they going to start to improve? And during that time, we got to really know the patient uh, through her sister. Her sister um, would be by her side every day. And she brought all of these pictures from her whole life, banning when she was a young woman. And it turned out she was actually a model in Paris. And, you know, this is a woman in her 80s now, but you see her there as a model in Paris. Just these, the images, um, which had 
probably been published in a magazine or something, were just absolutely stunning. And they were also kind of interesting. Like they would have some kind of, there'd be like, one of them had this kind of weird looking guy in an overcoat that was kind of near. And she's like, look at him strange. Like, I'm on to you. You know, it's just like, you could tell us what had like such personality. And right. the sister was so engaged and just, you would tell us about her. And, but then, you know, she's still so sick. We're like, well, obviously really glad that we had tried to say, but you're like, is this going to, to do anything? We were going to be able, you know, is she going to, is she going to be able to recover? And I think at least a couple of weeks went by and she was, she still needed to be in the medically induced coma. Finally, she started to have some signs of improvement. She was, she was needing less respiratory support, et cetera. And it was uh, Christmas Eve. And I tend to do things that are a little, a little bit silly that I perceive as harmless, but I thought, you know, it's Christmas Eve. Why don't I wear my angel wings while I'm on call <laughs> in the ICU? I'll wear my angel wings today. And some of the nurses had on their, um, had on like little elf things too. And I don't know, so we were, some people didn't like the angel wings though, because they thought it was confusing to patients if they thought an angel. <laughs> I know where you're going with it, I think. Yeah. But I was, I love those angel wings. For some reason, I, yeah, it was really, I like to wear them. But there'd been a little, little bit of controversy about them. So I was like, all right. Yeah, so we went into her room and she had been extubated. She had gotten off the respirator, but she hadn't said anything yet. And so we did our thing, you know, we check all her vitals, listen to her lungs, we do all the things. And um, then we turned to leave the, the room and she says, I love your wings. And I was like, it was just, to hear her voice, so we're just... That was the first thing she said? That was the first thing she said. Wow. It was, you know, and just this... And you just don't know, like, people when they're that sick, like, nobody else ever woke up and said anything like that. They're just very, you know... Right. You don't normally have that clarity after you've been through something. So I don't know why you would say that. Did you have a sense <laughs> that there was something spooky going on? I don't know. That's... I guess... I mean, I guess we were just... Because we had fought with people saying, oh, you shouldn't do stuff, shouldn't do that. It's, we we're just so happy. And I just, I think it just spurred us on to say, you know, like, okay, now no one's ever going to stop us. Maybe, maybe we're overboard now, like right. doing too much treatment. But I think each of these people is loved when you're in the heat of it and you're trying to do all these things with all the lines and machines and everything. You don't want to lose sight that that's is worth it. It really is a person in there. And if you can somehow pull it through and save that, save that person. You can make a huge, huge difference for a family and and for that person. And we were just so ecstatic to see her. And it wasn't, it actually wasn't just her. There were other patients. One patient was in a coma for at least six weeks. And they even, some people had thought he was brain dead and he actually fully recovered eventually. I thought it was just, it's just really extraordinary and just kind of taught you to have, you know, you just have to have faith, you have to have patience, you have to do your best every second, and maybe, maybe you'll get lucky and be able to save a few more of these people. Our regular listeners tell us that this next bit is their favorite part of the show. That's where the guest gets to ask and answer the last question. So in your case, what's the one question you've never been asked in an interview, would like to have been asked, perhaps, and what's your answer? The classic question to ask women in medicine is like, how do you balance your work life? And I'm like, no one has an answer for that. (laughs) But um, that is a that is a good question, because there are that is a good question. Yeah. Yeah. How how do you do that? I mean, I think it's been very challenging. I think 
now it's it's a little bit better because I think especially as I moving to at least being in a faculty position that I have a little bit more autonomy over my schedule and things like that. So I think that has really been fantastic, but it's challenging. I mean, I think science is a little bit better in terms of trying to, and that's probably why that I have in part been oscillating back and forth between the clinical side and the research side, because research, while it can be intense, like there also can be a little bit more autonomy in terms of when you do the experiments, you can come back and stay till three in the morning to finish it if you need to. But if you have to do something in the middle of the day, you can usually get a way to do it. There's no easy answer to that. And I think there are people who definitely handle the combination a little bit more elegantly, but. Eve, it's been absolutely fascinating, our discussion today, and I'm so thankful for it. Thank you for taking the time with me and with the audience for this show. I think they're going to find your story just really compelling and incredibly interesting. I hope that we, you and I, might have an opportunity to visit again in the future and we can talk perhaps about how your life has evolved from this point forward because I think there's great things yet to come in your story. So would we have an opportunity at some point down the road to maybe get together again and, and talk about how things have evolved for you from this point? Yes, I would be thrilled for that. Well, thank you again, Eve. It's been wonderful, and uh, we'll be talking again in the future by the sounds of it. Thanks. Yeah, no, I, I really appreciate this opportunity, and I hope that I can inspire people to continue to pursuing their dreams. Whether or not it follows an exact path is not necessary. You can have an impact and have a very meaningful career by following your heart. Thanks again, Eve. I really appreciate it. Thanks. This episode of the Work Not Work show, and I would like to once again thank our very special guest, pathologist Dr. Eve Crane. It's been a true pleasure, and I look forward to our next conversation. If you like what you've heard, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps. We're also on Patreon, and we would be honored if you would consider becoming a patron of the show, which starts for as little as $1 per episode. Our website is worknotwork.show, and we're on all of your favorite social media. We look forward to hearing your feedback, good or bad. Please leave your comments on one of our platforms. The show was written, produced, and hosted by me, Terence C. Gannon, and is wholly owned by Interlog Inc. of Calgary, Canada. All rights are reserved. Thank you, Michelle, my lovely wife, for your continuing support and your infinite patience. Finally, thank you, our faithful audience, for supporting the Work Not Work show, the show about people who, like Eve, have turned their passion into their profession. Thank you.